Good morning and welcome to this week's The New PNL Principles and Leadership and Business Podcast. We're so pleased you've taken the time to join us. Just before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to let you know about a couple of the exciting things on the horizon, which I touched on last week. In September, we hit our 250th episode, which is an amazing accomplishment from our perspective. And we're going to be rolling out a whole lot of initiatives over the next couple of months around the celebration. So keep listening over the coming weeks as we'll be given a sneak preview of some of these over July and August. This week, we're speaking to the phenomenal Sean Thompson, South African professional surfer and 1977 surfing world champion. Sean's an environmentalist, an actor, and a global keynote speaker and businessman, and the best-selling author of Surfer's Code and The Code, The Power of I Will. Sean was also listed amongst the top 10 surfers of the 20th century. And for the past three decades since retiring from the world professional surfing circuit in the early 1990s, Sean has traveled the world, sharing his academically tested leadership code and methodology with business leaders, employees, schools, charities, and prisons, using purpose as a foundation to engage, inspire, and drive higher performance in teams and businesses. So Sean, a very warm welcome to the new PNL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Pleasure, Paul. It's great to it's great to chat. Yeah, I'm it's Steve great to have you here. Santa Barbara, California, and uh, uh, it's good. I just got back from Costa Rica, so I look forward to chatting. Thank you very much. Um, for those of those listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, if we could just start with a quick introduction to you, what you do now, and uh, and who you do it for. Sure, I'm a former world surfing champion. I was on the pro tour for 16 years. I won nine, 19 major pros. Um, and um, along the way, I, I helped uh, create pro surfing with a group of Aussies and, and my cousin Michael. You know, we built we built it from a lifestyle into a sport. And today, yeah. the surf is worth uh, tens of millions of dollars. And young guys, are, you know, traveling around the world and girls, you know, making a good living. We also helped create the surfing industry. Uh, I had a I had a, a big brand back in the um, '80s. It was called Instinct. My cousin Mike had a big brand called Gotcha. And uh, you know it was wonderful to be at the cutting edge of um, of surfing and and turn our passion and and turn our lifestyle into into business. And then uh, more recently, um, after being sort of in the work environment, I sold Instinct when I retired. I started another company called Solitude. I worked for Patagonia for a couple of years, uh, running their apparel division, which was was a was a wonderful experience. Um, I started writing books, and then I started doing keynote uh, keynote speaking. I speak on purpose and how to activate purpose and how to find your power and find a path. It's a really simple method that that came from surfing. And now I speak to the largest corporations in the world, the most famous universities, the poorest schools, community groups, PTSD survivors, prisons. Uh, religious groups, all all sorts of people uh, who are open to hearing a different perspective and using a different tool to make life yeah. better for themselves and make life better for their families and make life better for their colleagues at work. So I love what I do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, uh, it all came from surfing. <laughs> I mean, it's been an extraordinary journey so far and as you say so much of your work is focused now on purpose and you've extracted that out of that 
that motivation from surfing and brought it into a into a work perspective. What does a brand with purpose look like? You know, truly look like at its core from your perspective. What defines a brand with purpose? So a number of things. Um, one is that you know, if you want a clear definition of of purpose, it's a committed intention to accomplish aims that are meaningful to oneself and also to the broader community and the broader world. So purpose is, I mean, I like to think there's five elements to it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, the, the acronym is AMAT that I, that I developed. And so purpose is aspirational. A purpose is inspirational. A purpose is moral. A purpose is authentic and, and purpose is timeless. It's not like a smart goal, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, yes. relevant, time sensitive. Purpose is forever. So companies that are imbued with purpose um, want to do good for their stakeholders across the board, not for the people that have a, a, a financial share. Yes, those are one of the groups of stakeholders, but for their, their team members at work, for their customers, for their suppliers, and also for the broader community, for uh, the communities in which they live, for the planet, um, not just for the planet, uh, uh, companies that are purpose orientated aren't only companies that are focused on uh, environmental sensibility. It's, yeah. it's, it's uplifting their entire stakeholder group. And yes, Patagonia is one wonderful representation of companies that are imbued with purpose, but there are many, many others. You know, I speak to hundreds of companies across the spectrum, across sectors, from defense to high tech, to AI, to science, to biotech, to consumer, to automotive, um, and the best companies uh, in my mind have these leaders that, that love what they do. Yes, they're passionate about what they do, but they're equally as passionate about their team members and they're equally as passionate about the mission. Um, so the purpose, I believe, and what I've seen, the changes that I've seen uh, in the American and the international business community, specifically since COVID started in February 20. Yeah. Uh, and I went, I, I went, um, I went live uh, in February 20. I was lucky and my first client at the time was the biggest, was the hottest company in the world. It was called Gilead Sciences. They were the only company in the world, a biotech company, that had a treatment for COVID. Right. Um, so I did live streams for a number of their different groups across the world. And I could see that, that while, while uh, uh, companies and team members and companies were under tremendous pressure, if you could create an environment um, where team members became introspective, just for a relatively short period of time, my programs are only two hours long. You, you, you create an, an environment in which people identify where they're at. Yeah. Then you have this moment where you take them surfing <laughs> vicariously. And then you have this exercise where people can be introspective and committed they create this new sense of purpose yes. for themselves and for their company, for their organization. And then what happens when a company 
and when a person is purpose-focused. There's many, 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 many studies, Paul, um, that I've read. There's a big study of 76,000 people from the University of Michigan. Yeah. People with a sense of purpose live twice as long. So it, it, it's, it's amazing the power. And then big study by Ernst & Young, purpose-led companies perform 42% better yeah. companies that are simply in business. Um, and also what I've found in, in, in my work, okay, so I, I haven't, there's only been one like study of my work or a small study, three companies. But what I've seen, especially since February 20, is that disengagement is a fundamental malaise. Yeah. So there's a big study, Gallup did a big study of 7.2 million people. And they discovered that 79% of team members around the world, they studied, I think, 1,300 business units. 79% of people are disengaged. Disengaged yeah, yeah. from company's mission, from each other, from purpose. So like my method, I believe, is a simple way to re-engage people, my code method, this method that I use. And I like to say it's open source code, it's, it's free. And okay, I've used my method for about a million people. It's still, it's still relatively small in the grand scheme of things. But, but what I, I try to do is I try to get people connected and engaged through finding their own purpose. Yes. And, and their purpose is, 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 is in a microcosm, but if you add up all those little universes, it forms the ultimate purpose and mission of the company who they work for. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want, to, I want to dig a little bit deeper in that because there's you know, a common perception that a, a business culture is a, is a singular concept, but it's not. In reality, it's a collection of communities, a ethnicity, department teams, regional offices, and so on. And that Absolutely. nuance is sometimes sometimes lost by leaders who are keen to impose a kind of, you know, with the best intention often, a core set of values across a diverse organization. So what's your advice to to leaders as to how they can use purpose to harness the best of communities and subcultures that already exist within a business, as well as ensuring that there's a, a common set of values to to bring people together at a wider company level? How do we use purpose to to bring the best of the diverse principles that exist within that business, but then use them to bind them into a common set of values and vision and mission. So, you know, when you ask someone like, what's your purpose? Yes. It's such a big, broad question. Yeah. It's very, very, it's very hard to answer. And, you know, there's a couple of ways to do it. Like what, what psychologists and organizational development people call my system, they call it a intervention mm -hmm. so so for me there's i've seen many interventions um so mine's mine's super simple and mine's not the only one like how do you find purpose and it's interesting this is a really really important concept and it's the start it's the start of everything um and and i'll i'll i'll, I'll tell you a couple of little stories to, you know, to back up this, this hypothesis. Firstly, the greatest management guru in the entire world, the guy who invented 
a management theory and who invented management as a scientific study is a guy called Peter Drucker. You've heard of him. Everyone's yes, heard of him. Although he hasn't, he's, he's sort of lost popularity now with all these sort of uh, quasi-management gurus and leadership gurus. But, but, but he's, if you want to look at the font, I believe, of the study of management and leadership, you can look, you can look back to Peter Drucker. He's written yeah. 31 books. Amazing guy. Um, now, the simplest book that he ever wrote and the thinnest book he ever wrote was five questions and it's a book that that he maintains that every company and every individual in a company needs to go through a period of self-analysis and uh, they all got to ask themselves five questions and the first question is like what's your mission what's your purpose yeah. <clears throat> and he said it's got to be short and it's got to fit on a t-shirt it's super cool <laughs> but still it's it's still quite an amorphous challenging concept like what's your purpose what's your mission uh, so, so what I do, my system is similar but different. And I say to people, I believe a way to find purpose is write 12 lines, mm-hmm. every line beginning with our will. Now, this is called your code. So it's a 15-minute exercise. So what I do is I speak to people and, and talk about the origin and development of the code. And it's, it's, it's got a cool surfing vibe it came from working with children. And then uh, I tell a few stories that are relevant, contextual stories, a story about commitment, a story about courage, a story about perseverance, and a story about connectivity. And then everyone writes their code, 12 lines, every line beginning with I will. So how does this relate to culture? Because this is a long-winded way to answer your, your question. So now... I tell you about my experience with a million people and companies, many companies. So now everyone's got their 12. Yes. So if it's a small group under 50, everyone stands up and they read their code to one another. It's an incredibly emotionally resonant and cathartic experience. You stand up, you read your code to your colleagues. So you might be a sales team, you might be an operations team, you might be a design team. You might be a school, university, you might be a group of inmates in a prison. So now I call it speaking in spirit language. So now everyone reads their code to one another. So it creates this incredible, warm, emotional connectivity because people know at at a kind of a deep inward level who everyone is because they are revealing their kind of 12, in a way, it's almost sacred. They're, they're sacred commitments. I'll have faith. I'll be a better spouse. I'll be a better father. I'll pray. I mean, everyone writes. Yeah. It's only 15 minutes, okay? So now everyone's written their 15 minutes. And then I ask people, um, so send one line that is most resonant to you. One. Mm-hmm. Out of your 12, send one that's most resonant. They text me a line and it comes up on the screen. And I capture that data, one line from every member of that company. And then I send that away to my artist. And this is really interesting. And anyone in any company can do this. It's really fun. It's um, absolutely free. Like I say, my method is uh, open source code. And I'll show you the result. And I'll show you how beautiful it is, and, I, and, and when I show it to you, 
I'm going to show you how this connects to culture. Okay, so now this is one line from each member. So, so the traditional definition of culture is the unspoken assumptions that connect a company that live within the walls. Yep. <laughs> That's traditional, you know, it's, it's never written down. It's just kind of unspoken assumptions. So for me, my definition of culture or my redefinition in the context of the code is that um, culture is the written commitments from team members that live on the walls. So now this is one line from every team member. It goes up on the HQ. Okay, HQs are different today. Today there's virtual HQs, but it goes up. And again, people don't read it every day. But maybe when things are going sideways at work or things are going sideways at life, they might walk by and they know that they're part of this mosaic. Yes. That culture is not a top-down pyramid. Culture is egalitarian. Culture is bottom-up. I will prioritize relationships. I will make a living by giving to those in need. I will act with resilience in the face of adversity. These are amazing words. And these are words, one word, from every team member. I will spend time reflection in every week. So you see how the simple code method identify culture because culture is so often not identified. And it's when it is identified, it's identified with these crappy businesses words. You know, it's like meaningless. You know, you read a, read a, read a company's culture statement. It's a joke. Yeah, yeah. It's come from a, it's come from, come from a most probably a consultant group who's come into the company and they've huddled up with a leadership team and they've delivered a vacuous crap that it's so vanilla that no one's even going to read it. It's, 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 it's just junk. But when, when, the, when members, man, when they write this, I'll tell you what, Paul, it's such a deeply emotional experience. I would say 25% of people cry when they read the codes. Yes. How do you encourage them to? to bring them to life. So they've written those codes that's come right from the heart in that moment in those 15 minutes. They've been put onto that art, that artist's representation, goes on the wall of the office. What is the process for them to engage and to commit to those to those characteristics, to that code on an ongoing basis? How do they bring them off the wall into life? So that's a that's a that's a that's a, uh, <coughs> you know a bloody good question. So we People can produce a little, a little card. It's called a code mm -hmm. card. So it's a little card with, with your own picture on it that you can, you can put in your wallet. Now I've had my code in, in, in my wallet for 20 years. And, you know, I don't look at it every day, but it's, it's almost like a, um, it's like my North Star. Yeah. I'll never turn my back on the ocean. I'll always paddle back out. And, you know, things go sideways in life. I'll, I'll sometimes, I'll know it's there, but sometimes I'll open it. And I read it, and, and my words have great resonance to me in the same way that everyone's own words have resonance to them. You know, the words of great leaders and writers inspire us. Winston Churchill, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Barack Obama, JFK, you know, whoever it, whoever it might be, Mahatma Gandhi. But our own words transform us. That's what I yes. found. Um, so... So first you've got your card, which is sort of this living reminder of this little sacred session that you did. Then um, I encourage people, do this with your families. Do it with your 
your your group at home, do it with yeah. your spouse, do it with your children, do it together. And I encourage them to do it with their own internal teams. I call it uh, creating a tribe. So you can create yeah. these tribes. And, and we've just got a, we've got an app at the moment that's that's in beta that, that we are, are developing so people can create these tribes infinitely. And one person create another tribe, one person can create another tribe. And, and I'm hoping this is a simple way to, uh, to solve, well, not solve, but maybe help with this disengagement problem because connectivity is the antithesis of disengagement. So, you know, how can you bring people together? Bring people together with the code. And then, you know, we're working on like a daily push notification. So you can, you know, you can get yeah. a daily push notification of your, of your code. You know, I will, I'll live with passion. I'll become a better servant leader. I'll, I'll create positive change. Whatever you've written or whatever your, your colleagues have written or your family members ha have written. So it's a way to stay together person to person, but it's also a way to stay together purpose to purpose. You, you know what I mean? It's yes, like, I do, yeah. it's, it's sort of, it's simple. It doesn't cost anything. Um, and, and, um, I, I think it does engender connectivity. That, that, that's, that, you know, that's my hope. I can only do what I can and, and that's what I, what I do. We are obviously by nature, we're, we're evolutionary creatures and every day we change in the way we develop our personal approach to life and what we do and the experiences we have and they all shape and mould us. And you're writing those commitments, those 12 commitments to the code in a moment in time. And some might be metaphors that are timeless, like I will always paddle back out because that always means fighting back into the resistance and resilience. But there are others that may be written that will change based on the circumstance. You may have a commitment to something in work and obviously your role changes. How do you ensure, what do you recommend that people do in terms of ensuring that they commit to the essence and the principle of those commitments, but also ensure that they evolve so they they remain relevant to their lives at any given point in time? You know, for me, I, I believe that, um, yes, we evolve as people. Um, I've, I think I've evolved a lot over the last <clears throat> 20 years since I, I wrote those 12 lines. And every one of my 12 lines was, was metaphor. And many people write, write a metaphor. Um, many people will, will write something that is relatively specific, like I will pray. Yes. Uh, or I will do what I say I will do. I had a group. I spoke to a group of prisoners. We have a Santa Barbara County jail, about 900 inmates. And I spoke to a group of, of male prisoners and I spoke to females, but I spoke to this group of male prisoners, maybe 50 of them at a time. And um, when I was speaking to the group, um, they all read their codes and they stood up one at a time and they started to read and, and, and like maybe their 10th guy or something. It's a very big, strong look. Uh, like he looked like he was the alpha of the alpha males yes, in the yeah. and he started reading his code and then he, he came to one line, I will forgive myself. And, and he started to cry. Yeah. It was incredibly emotional. And I'm, I'm looking around going like, what are the other prisoners going to do in this moment of like 
extreme vulnerability. They all started to cry and they all went around and they hugged him. Um, yes, and it was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing to see this. Um, it was amazing to see this incredible demonstration of, of connectivity, yes. vulnerability, but also accountability. You know, yes. he was making a statement that was very, very specific, yes. very, very specific. Um, so some statements are specific, some statements are metaphorical. And when I did this event in Costa Rica a few days ago, um, one of the young boys wrote, I will write my own map. This is a 13 year old. Yep. The principal came to me afterwards, it was like 400 students. She said, this is a kid that has more problems than any other kid. But when, you, when he, he did this exercise, it was amazing what he wrote. Uh, so sometimes specific, sometimes uh, metaphorical. And at that time when you write it, it's a sacred time, I think. And it doesn't need to evolve while you evolve. It, it's sort of fixed. And yes. it, it's like, like my father used to say to me after I used to compete in an event. And the judges would, would you know, come down with a decision. Sometimes it went your way, sometimes it didn't. He said, don't ever complain about a judge's decision. He said, son, that is carved in stone. And it's like when you write your code, it's like yes. carved stone. <laughs> That's my thinking anyway. <laughs> when you were a professional surfer, you were recognized for your unique tube writing style. And, you know, you actually changed the way a tube section was was written. The tube section of a wave was written. And you're credited with the line, time is expanded inside the tube. And <laughs> anyone who's ever watched you know, a surfer in the tube, and we have much more opportunity to do that now with the camera technology. You can go right inside the tube with a surfer. It's it's an extraordinary thing to watch. And I, I wanted to to just understand a little bit more from you, your thinking behind the line, time is expanded inside the tube, both where it comes from, what your thinking is, but also how can we use that concept and apply it more broadly in life? Because it's a very philosophical thought I think to have and I'd love to get your background to it. Yes, I made that statement when I was 20 years old. <laughs> um, and what, what happened is I, I come from this this incredible wave in, in South Africa. It was called the Bay of Plenty. It was where I grew up. It was where I caught my first wave. And at certain times of year from um, sort of from January through to August, we get these amazing incredibly long tube rides. Yeah. So I had to develop this entire new technique for riding inside the tube, doing maneuvers and, and subtle weight adjustments while you were riding inside the tube, which was very different to, to sort of the way the tubes were ridden at the Bansai pipeline, which was really the benchmark for tube riding back in the, in the early 70s. And, and the, you know, the, the key guys were, were, were Jerry Lopez, you had um, Rory Russell, Jackie Dunn. And then also there were these amazing tubes in Australia at, uh, at Burley Heads and Kira, and, and the top guys then were Robert Bartholomew, Peter Tarr, and then Michael Peterson. And they all had this very sort of delicate trim. But I had much more, 
of an aggressive driving approach. And it wasn't that one was better than the other. Mine was just different. Mine was, was sort of newer, innovative, more uh, perhaps more imaginative and really turning inside the tube and, and riding inside the tube as opposed to just flying like an arrow in, in that, yes. dead, yeah. that dead straight line. So what happened, I'd get into these really, really deep tubes and, and these were like, for the day, really long tubes, 8, 10, 12, 15 seconds. And today they're riding, I mean, they have these incredible waves that they've discovered uh, on the west coast of South Africa and the Mentawai yeah. and, and Peru, all, all these different places in the world have these fabulous tubes where, where people can, can ride a lot longer than, than, than I used to. But the technique for riding inside the tube and, and slowing down your consciousness, because you like a high-speed camera, you you absorbing all this information. And if you can be very relaxed and very confident, you can control that dimension of time. And I really felt that I could control and slow down time. And then also I felt that when I was surfing at my absolute highs, I could curve that wall to my will. I felt that in some ways I, I was so perceptive and work and, and, and surfing at such a high level of consciousness that I could actually curve that wall, control that wave. And it was an amazing sensation. And then um, in the seventies, a guy started to write about it. Uh, his name's Miha Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, he's a Hungarian psychologist. Um, and he developed this theory of flow, which yes. is a state of optimum human functioning and flourishing. And I actually met Miha and, and I spoke at a number of positive psychology events with Miha. Um, and he would speak about flow and I'd speak about my experiences and how my experiences were absolutely typical of this. So how can people use this experience? How can people use this to make their lives better? How can people use this in business to make them perform at a high level. Well, there's a, there's a number of um, ways that one can reach the state of flow, this state, I believe, of optimum human functioning. And yes, it's absolute concentration, it's focus, it's passion, but it's also doing something that is good and doing something that is meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, these are all uh, aspects of of living and working in this um, in the state of flow, in the state of optimum uh, human functioning, and when when people write their codes, that fifteen minute process, that sacred process, I look around and I see people are, are in that state of flow. They are really in that state of flow. They're writing, and and people people can't believe sometimes what they've written because it's so deep, it's so profound. And you, you know what I found that this little process, 15 minutes, this is flow state, you know, it reveals the fundamental meaning and purpose of our lives. Yes. And I've written millions of lines of code. And, and as, as I've seen it, we only write two lines of code. So the one line that we write when we're in the state of flow, when we're in the state of, of, of human flourishing and optimum um, performance is I will be better. 
genetically, we want to be better. We want to be better today than we were yesterday. We have this compulsion. We want to be better. We want to be better fathers. Um, we want to be more successful. Uh, we want to achieve more. We want to create more great projects. So, so that's one half of the meaning of purpose in life. And the other half is um, I'll help others be better. And, and the coach like usually split 50-50. I want to be a better dad. I want to be a mentor. I want to lift others up when they're down. Uh, I want to be a better leader. So it, it's, it's really interesting how, you know, Paul, I look at life simply. Eh? And you can see my method. It's so simple. It's, it's not complex. And when you eliminate the, when you eliminate the nuance, um, and you eliminate everything that is superfluous and you get down to this essence here. I want to be better. I want to help others be better. Yeah. It's pretty simple. When you talk about flow and we look at it through the lens of positive psychology and you've talked about optimum moments of flow, I wondered whether what is the ultimate ambition? Is the ultimate ambition to consistently strive to try and achieve optimal flow, or is the ultimate ambition the desire to reach optimal flow? So is it the journey that is the important part, or is it the achievement of flow that is critical for our lives? Yeah, I think it's the journey. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's wonderful to win a world title. Yes, it's wonderful to right inside that tube and be spat out the end. But like some of my best tube rides have been when I didn't get spat out the end, <laughs> which has just been about that journey. And and when I you know when I think about what I have people do, it's not about the end point. I will. I will is not about conquest victory. Yes. It's about commitment. It's about a promise of the future. It's about hope. It's not I am. It's not where you are right now. It's not I've climbed to the top of Everest. I am a conqueror. It's, it's just really about what's to come. Yes. Uh, that's why I, I really love the, uh, I love what it, what those two little words, what those five letters signify. Hope, commitment, drive, courage, purpose, mission, um, perseverance. It, it, it describes so much, so simply. Perseverance is an interesting word. You've used it twice. You used it at the beginning of the previous answer and, and the end just there now. And it's a word we never hear much in business anymore. We hear a lot about resilience, how we develop our resilience to things happening to us. But we don't often talk in business anymore about the perseverance and the persistence needed to succeed because it's a less, I guess in some regards, it's a less glamorous it's the less glamorous twin of resilience. Resilience is all about puffing your chest out and surviving. Perseverance is often dirty and hard work, you know, and I I wonder whether you feel there is enough 
consideration and emphasis given to perseverance today or whether there's too much leanly non-resilience? Yeah, people think that that um, they're interchangeable, but they're not interchangeable. Yeah. When I think of resilience, I spoke at this amazing school in South Africa a number of years back. Um, the school's called Oshlanga. It means read in, in uh, Zulu. It's the first school started by a black South African. Um, it's where Nelson Mandela voted for democracy in 1994. Right. It's an iconic, an iconic school. And when I think of read and I think of Oshlanga, and I think of, 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 of South Africa, I think of that reed that's blown in the wind and it blows, it's blown down and it comes back up. That's resilience. That's kind of a natural push back yes. from being downtrodden. But perseverance, that's different. Perseverance. Is you've got to nut up, you've got to be a man, you've got to cop the loss, and you've got to take one more step forward. You've got to take one more stroke to paddle over the edge. You've got to take one more stroke when you've had the worst wipeout of your life. <clears throat> and when I, when I do these uh, keynotes, the very first story I talk about is a story about perseverance. Mm -hmm. So I, I will always paddle back out. I will always paddle back out is not about resilience. It's about having the worst wipeout of your life and making the fundamental choice. What are you going to do? Yeah. You're paddling, you're going to paddle back out. Paddle, P, perseverance, P. It, yep. It's very much less glamorous it's much more about hard work and not just springing back and and yes i'm not trying to say that that the dreadful hardships that that people had to endure during apartheid and and segregation um there was unbelievable resilience within the black community, there was incredible perseverance um, amongst you know, dreadful conditions. But there are two different aspects of what one has to do in order to live a, a meaningful and productive life and come back from hardship. Both of them are important, but they're very different. I guess to expand on your analogy that with the read, the perseverance is the, the perseverance to grow in those conditions the the resilience is yeah, to bend back and forth but i love that the perseverance is actually for the reed to grow in the first place in the adverse conditions exactly exactly um that is a great uh, i love that uh, i love that metaphor about the two you know I've, I've often thought about the difference and how how different they are and and all the attention that has been brought to bear on uh on like teaching people how to be resilient and teaching people how to how to bounce back where where perseverance i think is the driver is the root like you yes. said it's the root. Right. Yeah. perseverance is the root yeah. of resilience yeah very true 
You were, as you cited earlier, you were 1977 world champion. You were on the world professional surfing circuit for nearly two decades and rated as one of the 10 greatest surfers of all time. And I, <laughs> it's, it must have been very hard to come off that in the early 90s. And I wanted to understand how you redesigned and redefined your own purpose after such huge success. You know, where did you find initially that, that desire, that new purpose to transition out of the, the highest level of that sport? You know, I had a, um, I was always like an entrepreneurial type of guy. I was competitive. And uh, so going into the, the surfing business was, 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 was very cool. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I enabled the, the created, created a, a brand with wording that I loved that was uh, based around uh, what I was passionate about, you know, riding inside the tube and the best tubes happen when you're operating on instinct. And, you know, created this company and, and when I had instinct, I also had the opportunity of sponsoring and mentoring other guys. I sponsored an Australian Tom Carroll to two world titles, 84 and 85. I sponsored another uh, wonderful surfer, Barton Lynch, to a world title in 1988 and then sponsored so many other young athletes. And, you know, I, during my career, I really tried to, yes, I loved what I was doing and, and you know, winning is, it's very, it's very self-centered, but I love to win for myself. I love to win for my family. I love to inspire my country. I love to inspire my, my friends and, 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 and people that, that uh, looked up to, to me. So I suppose in many ways, I was in the inspiration business yes. during my pro career with instinct with, uh, and with my uh, competitive career and then helping create um, pro surfing. Um, so yes, I, I was in, without even knowing it at the time, I was in the inspiration and leadership business. Yes, I was driven to, I was at, studying at university while I was, uh, while I was at, um, while I was on the tour, I was also, um, you know, I was a lifelong learner, man. I loved to learn. And I think one of the cool things that surfing teaches you is humility. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. the best surfers, the ones that look beneath the surface, um, the ones that, you know, want to make a difference in the impact. You know, are humble. They want to learn. They want to be better. They want to learn. Um, so, you know, I was always a voracious uh, reader. You know, I love to read biographies. Like, what could I get? What can I get from John McEnroe? Well, how do you win Wimbledon? Win the next point. I mean, that is such a profound statement, you know, staying in that, in that present, stay, staying in that present moment. So when I retired, you know, I wanted to stay in the business. I sold Instinct, um, and then uh, and then worked for a while in South Africa. My wife and I moved back to South Africa, and then we decided to move to the United States. And um, I interviewed around with, with all these different surfing companies, and I thought, wow. I had uh, after I had retired, I had three credits to comp complete my my economics and business finance degree. So I went back to university at like thirty. Yeah. I was the oldest student, you know, doing university full time. And it was a big year of change for me because I sold Instinct that year. And uh, my wife got pregnant and, and, and we had our son, our first son, Matthew, like one month before final exams. So it was like, phew, my mind was fully blown. But I finished my university degree and then mid-90s, we decided to move to the States, interviewed around. And I, um, no one wanted to hire me. Mm. It, was, it was very, uh, it was very sobering yeah. to understand that companies in surfing 
don't owe you anything and you better not think that they owe you anything because yeah. they're not going to give you anything. And um, none of them would give me a chance. And on my last day, um, I, I was with a surfboard shape and my, my surfboard shape and one of my best friends at the time, a guy called, called um, from uh, Channel Islands, just a great guy, Al Merrick. Yeah. And he said, hey, Sean, you've got to check out this little company in Ventura. He said, they make super cool fleecy jackets. So I go, well, who are they? He said, it's called Patagonia. I went, Patagonia? So the only Patagonia I know is a mountain range in Chile. He said, no, they make cool jackets. I went, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll check them out. So I phoned them up and said, hey, you know, I'm over from South Africa. I'm looking for a position. And uh, maybe you guys have, a, have an opening for me. And the guy said, sure, come down. We'll take, we'll have an interview. And I go down the very next day and I go in there. And as I walk in, I see right adjacent to the uh, HQ is a school. And I go, what's with the school? They go, no, it's our school, our team members. Yeah. And uh, I go in and they show me around and you know, meet everyone. And I'm like, wow, what a cool company. The first thing I see is a school. Yeah. And I go back to South Africa, I've got to have an offer by the end of the day. They gave me an offer by the end of the day. They me, my whole family, and I, I stayed in the Chenard's house for six months, man. Wow. wow. I was, when I was, I had to have ear surgery, you know, surface ear, I was like out for two weeks. I slept in their, in their son's bed. They, they, they would bring me food. <laughs> wanted, I mean, whatever you've heard about Patagonia, multiply by 10. Yeah. And when I was at Patagonia, Yvonne would have these little philosophy sessions, he called them. He said, Sean, my management theory, I have the MBA theory. I go, what's that? He said management by absence. Because <laughs> he was never there. He was always like on some mountain trip. Or yeah, yeah. You know, and I go surfing with him. He's just the coolest dude. No ego. But let me tell you, powerhouse, marketing, sales, and also environmental sensibility. Yeah. Say, sure, you've got to understand. Doing good is good for business. Yes. It's wonderful to have an altruistic philosophy and you want to do good, but it's good for business. Yeah. yeah. That philosophy, which permeated the whole, the whole business, but you don't do good just to walk around with a shiny star. Yes. You're good. Yeah. You've got the shiny star, baby, but also your business is, is prospering. So this is a, a long winded answer to your question. How did I go on the journey after? Surfing was over when I went work for Patagonia and I realized, wow, there's a different way to do business. So my wife and I started another company. We called it Solitude. And we were the first company in the surfing business to use the environmental sensibility and the, the thesis that doing good is good for business. And, and, you know, we were doing environmentally friendly products in, in, in 19, uh, in we started the company in 1998. We released our first product in 1999. Yeah, yeah. Nearly yeah. a quarter of a, 25 years ago. Yeah. And um, let me tell you, at that stage, no one wanted it. Yeah. But the, 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 my, my mates in the surf industry would come up to me and say, hey, Sean, you've turned into an effing granola cruncher. <laughs> Why are you doing this stuff? It's too expensive. No one's going to buy it. I mean, it's because this is what we believe in. You know, I've learned that from my wonderful, I sent that wonderful company, Patagonian, from Yvonne and the, and the teams there. And then ultimately, 
we sold our company to a publicly traded company. And then uh, I wrote my little surface code to inspire a group of children that were coming down to Rincon, a famous surfing beach that was having an environmental challenge. Yeah. Um, and, and I printed up a hundred code cards for a hundred dollars. The guy who, who formerly founded Surfrider Foundation, of which I became the first member ambassador in 1984, asked me to help. And, and through this little code, we created consciousness about the environmental problem, solved the problem, but the cards took on like a life of their own and ultimately led to a book, my first book called, called Surface Code. And when the book was at the printer, I got the terrible news that I lost my son. My wife and I lost our beautiful boy, Matthew. Nice. Played a dangerous game. I heard about this game called the choking game. They all played, they played it with these school tires at school. You know, they all were school tires. And um, then, then, then my life went down a completely different yeah. path. And, and I really, really became focused on, well, perhaps this little code is a way to help people make better choices, to find purpose, to be more engaged with one another, to be more engaged with their fundamental mission, to be more committed, I will, to have more power so that when it comes time to make that life and death decision and you're 14 years old and your mom and dad are not there with you and some friend speaking shit in your ear and telling you to do yeah. something you don't really want to do, maybe those 12 lines will, will help you. So. So that's how my life, my life went down that path. And it wasn't, it wasn't planned. But you know, when you, like when I think about when I want to take off on a wave, what you do on the wave is not really planned. Yes. The, the wave is like life. Yeah. And yes, you're using your instinct and you, you're reacting to it and you have got a bit of a plan. But that wave is going to move and go. And you're just going to go with the ride. And that's what I've done. But, but I, I'll tell you, when I've been at my lowest, surfing's been there for me. Yeah. When I've been at my lowest, lowest, lowest. Um, and maybe it wasn't right there for me right then, but it was there. Yes. And when I needed it, I could grab onto it and, and, and it could help me and it did. And that's why I think I'm, where I am today, and that's why when I speak about surfing, I speak about surfing, but I speak about life. And, and yes, surfing is my metaphor, and surfing made me who I am, and yes, my mom and dad, and my wife and my children, have, and, and brothers and sisters and friends and colleagues have, have helped mold me, but surfing has been a huge part. Well, it's always... A wave is always there waiting for when you're ready for it, isn't it? It's always mm -hmm. there waiting for you. Absolutely. Do you, you touched on instinct there when you're riding that wave and that you're in that moment and you've got to go with your instinct. One thing I worry about in today's world with algorithmic searches and everything else and the what I feel to be a reduction in natural sense of curiosity and a natural inability sometimes to trust your gut, to trust your instinct. I wondered whether you feel where in line with your disconnection points that you've made earlier, whether we also have a disconnection with our 
the trust that we should have in our instincts and our, in our innate ability to to trust our gut and to go with it. Yeah, you know, I went to see this talk and I read the book uh, by a guy called Daniel Kahneman. It's a Nobel laureate uh, and it's called, <clears throat> I think it's called Thinking Fast and Slow or Thinking Slow and Fast. I don't know, maybe it's Thinking Fast and Slow. And he talks about like two states of mind. One is analytical and one is instinctual, instinctual, more prone to bias. Yep. And as a scientist, obviously he has this bias <laughs> towards analytics. Anyway, that's how I saw it. And perhaps I saw it completely differently, but there is this um, instinct that that yes, we need to trust our instinct, but also, and I think that they can live together, we need to think twice. So when I, when I talk specifically to students um, at schools and universities, generally it's from like 12 years old and up, all the way to freshman students at, you know, all the way, I, I mean, undergrad students, they, they don't have to be in their first year, Freshmen is what they call them here in the United States. Um, I tell I tell kids, and I talk about uh, when I was 19 years old and I was faced with a choice. The kid in the house that I was staying at offered me heroin for the first time. He called it China White and he was burning it and smoking it. And he said, hey, Sean, you've got to try it. Got to try it, man. It's cool. All the guys at Pipeline are doing it. And Pipeline was the most famous wave in the world, and I wanted to be a guy partner. And I was staying there. So yes, there was certain obligations, my mate, let's get it on, let's do it. And, 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 and right then, instinctively, there was a no. And then I went, no. And I thought about it and I went, no, and I packed my bags, went downstairs and got out of there. And <laughs> you know, a couple months later, I heard the news that my friend had died from an overdose. And I say to people, yes, Instinct is super important, but when that decision comes, and it will come, different contexts, but it will be life and death. Yeah, you've got to think twice because that that can save you. Just that simple process. So I think there is definitely a connectivity between the two of them. And instinct is like your spidey sense. Yes, you know, it's like your your your, your spidey sense, um, and uh, then you've got to. Then you've got to think twice. And I think the, it's funny, you know, Spidey sense that superhero thing. I, I ask kids, I say, okay, I've got a prize for you. you you'll, get a, you'll get a free book or whatever I have. Going. And I said, you've got to tell me who made this quote. Because I tell them, find your purpose, find your power, find your path. But with great power comes great responsibility. Who said that? <laughs> so, who said that with great power comes responsibility? And if I ask anyone, generally over 30 years old, I'll say, Mama Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Winston Churchill, JFK, and, 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 and I go, no, and boom, I flash up a picture of Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> uncle Ben, Spider-Man's, Spider-Man's uncle. You know, the kids, the kids will always get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it's, it's so funny that, um, you know, kids are kids, and I remember I was into comics, and these wonderful metaphors and these great stories, and 
you know, all the stories are based on, you know, the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell. And it's wonderful to see how you can use these, these comic book heroes. And I use, I use my kind of life in some ways as sort of a surfer in the same way that, that, you know, Spider-Man ventured through life and Ulysses or whatever. It, it's sort of the same type of journey. And, uh, you know, it, it kids, kids relate to it as long as you're authentic, I think humble, um, and, uh, you're true. Yes. Yeah. Sean, that is, um, great advice to end the podcast on. And probably the first time we've had the Tao with Spider-Man wisdom delivered in this uh, <laughs> podcast. So I appreciate the uniqueness <laughs> as well. It's been a real total pleasure to interview you. Thank you so much. Paul, that was great. I mean, you asked wonderful, warm, uh, thoughtful questions. You have a great way. And uh, of course, you know, there's such a wonderful connectivity between between uh, New Zealanders, uh, post-colonial countries with their wonderful ethnic cultures, just like South Africa, post-colonial yes. country with with their um, wonderful ethnic cultures. And, and you know, I, I want to I want to end off, and I want to I want to uh, read you from this wonderful inscription um, that's on a memorial uh, at my favorite beach where, where I surf uh, whenever the surf is, is good. It's called Hammond's Reef here in, in Santa Barbara. And right adjacent to, to Hammond's Reef is a, is a beautiful meadow. It's called Shalawa Meadow. And it's dedicated to the Shumash people, which is the Native American tribe, the indigenous people that lived in this area. And uh, the oldest human remains that have been found on, on an adjacent island to where we live, um, 13 and a half thousand years ago. So very, very ancient, the Shumash. Um, and they used to live and sail in this area around the channel. So right next to this beautiful beach is a memorial. And, and one day my son and I, you know, we went up and to this memorial and, and, and after my son read these words, he created this beautiful sacred story circle in the sand. That, that's what he called it. He created these circle of cobblestones in the sand, uh, three, three concentric circles that I built with him. We were the only two people on the beach and in the innermost circle, he put down two stones and came running back on the beach with a stick and put some kelp and feathers in the stick. And we passed the stick back and forth and we told these, these sacred stories. It was the most beautiful moment. But before we did that, we went up and we read this memorial on Shalawa Meadow that's written by Shumesh Poet. And it reads, The sacredness of the land lies in the mind of its people. This land is dedicated to the spirit and memory of the ancestors and their children. So when I speak to you today, I like to think I spoke in spirit language. I hope you felt my spirit and it's been an honor to chat, Paul. Oh, I did, Sean, and thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. Cheers, man. <laughs> Thanks once again for listening to our conversation with Sean today. It was a truly enlightening and inspiring conversation. Really, really enjoyed it. If you'd like to learn more about what Sean does and the keynotes he delivers and his leadership code, you'll find the links to his website in the notes that accompany this podcast, as well as the links to purchasing his book. And if you've enjoyed this or any of the other episodes of the new PL, 
I encourage you to rate us or review us. It all helps with our ratings and our rankings. And I also encourage you to come back next week for our next episode of the new PNL to the point, and maybe the first of our new initiatives that we're rolling out to celebrate the 250th episode in September. So finally, I'm Paul, host of the new PNL. Thank you once again for listening. Have a great day and speak again soon.